Hey, welcome to the uh, True Lyman podcast. I'm Edgar Papke. I'm Ken Sagendorf. Yes, you are. (laughs) Thanks for joining us today. (laughs) We're live in the Gronowski Innovation Incubator here in the Anderson College of Business and Computing at Regis University here in Denver, Colorado. It's a beautiful day after some rain yesterday, Edgar. Yeah, it is. It's just absolutely, it's crisp. It feels like autumn. Finally. And it is, yes. Yes, yes. No more of that 75 degree nonsense on the weekends. Yeah, we got up to close to 80 at one point, and that was, mm. Yeah, and this speaks about us, that we go directly into a conversation about the weather. Yeah, Um, because we don't have anything else to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Welcome to the the True Alignment podcast, where we talk about all things alignment. Yes. If you have any questions uh, from the audience from all over the world where people are downloading the podcast, uh, email us at info at truealignment.com. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. Yes. And, and we always do. So thank you. Questions, thoughts, comments, anything at all? Anything. Um, today, we are really fortunate um, to have a guest, uh, Mr. Richard Lackey, with us. He's the chairman of the World Food Bank. I'll, I'll go through the official uh, um, scrub of his long and illustrious career here in Incre- just a second. Yeah. The list of accomplishments is amazing. Absolutely amazing. How old are you? Uh, uh, 107. Yeah, <laughs> you look great. <laughs> That's like that attorney that dies and goes to That's goes right. to heaven. And he's met at the gates, and the band is playing, and they say, "Wow, you lived longer than anyone ever on earth." And the attorney says, "What? What do you mean?" He says, "Yeah, well, according to our records, you lived about 200 years." And the attorney says, "No, I didn't. I died at 63." And God <laughs> looks at him and goes, "God oh, damn!" He says, "We calculated your age on your billing hours." <laughs> 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 Sorry. Very good. <laughs> very, very <laughs> nice. Well, Richard, uh, you know, I've known you for the last few years. Um, you come and you're a wonderful judge at the finals of our business competition, the Regis Innovation Challenge. I love the the perspective and the questions that, that you ask. It really blows the mind of our, of our participants. And so uh, I, I love that. Thanks. It's a great program. Incredible, incredible program. Well, thank you. You know, we always get... Um, I always get questions when you leave. Like, why did you ask that guy here? Well, he, he does, you know, he, <laughs> hold on. He, he runs the World Food Bank. Why yeah. is he asking those kinds of questions? And, and I think that, you know, that's really, um, as, as, I think about your, as I think about your background, and we do a little bit of an intro here, I'm going to read the first paragraph, and then I'm going to paraphrase all the stuff, and I'll ask you to fill in the important parts that I've missed. But Richard Lackey is a business entrepreneur and a trader with more than 30 years of diverse experience. Uh, he's appeared as an expert in the field of securities trading in magazines, on radio, and in television, so he's slumming with us to here today. Um, that's not in there. I ad-libbed that part. Um, he's developed educational and training programs that have been embraced by professional traders and money managers around the world. He's been trading equities um, amongst those 103 years that he mentioned there. He's a graduate of the University of Georgia with a bachelor's degree in marketing and management But while he was a student, he obtained licenses in real estate, insurance, and emergency medicine. And this will help us in the conversation we'll have about uh, that that broad background. Um, He worked as a marketing consultant for Pfizer for six years before dedicating his efforts to dedicating his efforts to asset management. Employing classic military strategy and more than two decades of martial arts training, Mr. Lackey developed a program for new entrants into the security trading business to model. You've, tra- you've founded investment groups. <laughs> um, you, you work around the planet. And, and I think my 
big, giant, exciting thing to have you on the podcast was because you seem to put things together. And I just wanted to read that line about all the different mm-hmm. licenses you got while you were in college, because I, you know, I think that speaks volumes to how you work. You see connections where there aren't necessarily connections made currently. Yeah, we talked and we talked about this uh, before we came on the air, and that's the uh, the systems thinking aspect of that to be able to see things in a broader context and then you know connect the dots and see where and see where the uh, uh, not just the connections are, but I'm also thinking about where where the where the alignments show up. One of the things that I just want to, and if you're if you're ready to just get into some dialogue, Ken or your, well, let me let me just wanna? say, you know, with that background in, yeah. in, in securities and in, in the trading, you know, in 20, 2017, you founded the World Food Bank Group to leverage new technology in food storage to resolve many of the challenges associated with commodity sourcing. So you're bringing that, you can see that, how that works. Uh-huh. You bring that financial acumen and the understanding of how things move and you start to add new things in, but you take yeah. on new tackles. You're an advisor to USAID. Um you know, how does this all happen, Richard? Well, it's a, uh, it's a great question. I appreciate you asking. The, um, and, and, and as you guys know through the work that you're doing with True Alignment, uh, there's an art side of it as well as a science side of it. So we know that we know the titles of the things that need to be in alignment, but actually putting them in alignment is not as easy as telling <laughs> everyone what they need to do and it falling into place. There is something of an art to it. Um, what I found out is that I have a penchant really for ecosystems. And in military training, there's a very specific algorithm that's typically very linear. And in medicine, it it's a little bit more of a derivative, right? There's airway breathing circulation. Then, But if you have, if breathing is an issue, then we go down a new algorithm set. And we have these three things. If this one doesn't work, then we try these other two. If that works, then you try. And you just keep working that path. And that's because medicine, we've had hundreds and hundreds of years to build out those algorithms and a lot of systems that are still around today. And we think we're in extraordinarily modern times, but we're really not. We haven't solved some of the most basic problems on the planet today. We still have people after a disaster that wait six or eight days for food to get to them when there's an abundance of food in the world. We still wait. We still have people that have medical challenges Mm -hmm. that we have solutions for those medical challenges that have been solved 60 years ago. And we just don't have the proper way we're not efficient in diagnosis and treatment. Uh, so any of those ecosystems are out there, and we're looking for students at, at uh, Regis to solve them. But um, for me, I, I was a, a trader, and I'd worked in, in emergency medicine just because I liked helping people. I got a kick out of it. And, <laughs> um, and, and there's also the polyester knit uniforms you get to Fantastic wear. Fantastic. Those yeah. are sweet. Those are sweet. <laughs> nice and warm, too. And if you work in a rural area, you typically work with fire departments as well and if you go into a trailer fire with polyester knit it's a whole new experience that's right this is what was an extra large shirt now becomes an extra small shirt (laughs) and the sleeves disappear along with some of your skin sometimes but it's again that's one of those where they thought about a very specific model but they didn't expand the rest of the systems out to understand that uh, on occasion a better design would have prevented some of these problems but in uh in in medicine I, I worked in, as a, in disaster response and volunteered in, in post-disaster environments in the U.S. and Latin America and other places. And we always had this issue of food not showing up immediately after the natural disaster. In places like Texas and Mississippi, you'd have groups like Cinderleaf and, and others sitting there for five or eight days with their people 
waiting on food to come while FEMA did its what they call rapid assessment test and they then they go back to cisco and u.s foods and they try to figure out where they can source that food from and then they have to get the trucks permitted because the roads are not considered safe and they don't want to drive on them unless they're guaranteed that if they crash they have their insurance covers them so they're going through all this in the background when we haven't stopped having disasters right they should have put these systems into place in advance and we really shouldn't have to source food from outside Mm -hmm. we should have a a network of food stored and ready that we rotate in and out of the rest of the system. Mm -hmm. Right. But we still haven't solved that problem quite frankly, but, um, and then having met a commodities trader and knowing how commodities move from place to place and the value of commodities, and then seeing new technologies for storing commodities, you're able to start putting a and B together. So the finance background and the medical background began kind of tying into, hey, there's a big problem that I keep seeing. We could actually solve this with this new ecosystem. And then that's the beginning of the challenge. Yeah, I love, uh, Richard, even the fact that you were, you know, the way that you get those backgrounds is through experience. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I think uh, here in a university, we're, we're, we still have some singularity and focus, right? This is an argument that we, that we have in higher ed. It actually might be the argument that eats it eats itself here in higher education because, you know, we, we go back and forth between teaching you a breadth of, uh, breadth of skills and a breadth of topics uh, to, you know, making you laser focused on one single career move. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't think there's an answer, but I think if you choose to do either one in the absence of the other, we're probably going to lose. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, wise mentors of mine has, have always told me that the, the best answer for a dichotomy is both, both and. That's right. Right? Mm-hmm. Get your butt out of my face and. <laughs> okay. The language of, of creativity, innovation, and really solving problems. Yeah. There, there is something interesting uh, I want to delve into here just a little bit with you, Richard, is this. Um, you just provided this insight into um, the ecosystem kind of way of thinking about it and your past experiences and avail- say availability of aid and food and disaster situations. And so where do you come, uh, so how do you come at it in finding what the right problem is that needs to be solved? Because you said that's a problem that's still not solved. We still have that same problem. Mm-hmm. So where's the problem within the problem that keeps it from, from going forward? Oh, that's a great question. Um, how do you say this gingerly? the question oh this is the true alignment podcast forget the, the gingerly people have a tendency of getting in their own way maybe i don't know this well uh, the uh, so we depend on the government to solve all of our problems so that's where the problems begin uh-huh. um and so we look to have food we assume that 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 solution has been has been provided or will be provided when it occurs in our neighborhood. Uh-huh. When all the houses burn down, there'll be somebody there to rebuild them. When there's no food after a natural disaster, Red Cross, FEMA, someone will be there to solve the problem. Well, I'll give you one little piece that's broken the whole puzzle. Uh, for example, FEMA runs on an annual budget. So if you create a solution that takes a five or seven or 10 year budget to fix it, they can't do that. So if you say, let's build a network of food storage, I'll buy all the food, I'll store it, I'll make regionally specific meals. So we have grits in the south. Yeah. We don't have them in the north. We have western chili in the west. We don't in the northeast. And we can produce breakfast, lunch, dinner, water filtration, everything that you need post-disaster and put it in strategic locations stored around the U.S. 
for immediate response within eight hours into every disaster prone area, enough to solve for any of the largest disasters that have ever happened in history times five. The problem is it's about $1.8 to $3 billion to build that. If you're able to take that food that's sitting in storage and slowly cycle 10% of it or 20% off per year and roll it into the SNAP feeding program, you're able to buy food from smallhold farmers, excess grains, excess potatoes, excess fruits and vegetables, and dry them and store them. And now you've improved the efficiencies of the provider, Mm -hmm. of the grower, of the farmer. You've stabilized that market. You've now put it in storage. As long as you can turn around and push those products back into another system, well, the natural system would be the USDA school feeding program. Well, USDA is not the same as FEMA. Those are two different groups they don't really talk to one another the other is femas on an annual budget so you literally need an act of congress to say we're going to fund this over 10 years we're going to add one percent which is the amount of the budget needed of fema's budget not the global budget one percent of their budget we're going to add increase it by one percent for 10 years we've solved the problem but we just can't get that done so um you know I, i wrestle with these kinds of questions and, and I'm always trying to figure out why the people are in the way, why the organizations are in the way, to, to your question, Edgar. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when I left working for the Air Force Academy, um, you know, I had a, some crankiness, and, and a friend of mine handed me a book called, um, it was about John Boyd. It's called The Art of the Warfighter. Mm. You read it? I know it. So, you know, I, I, I love this story of, of John Boyd really kind of raising these kinds of questions inside the military. And, you know, when they tried to bury him in the Pentagon and as a young major, he refused to talk to anybody, but um, the highest of the high, including Dick Cheney, who was then secretary of defense and, you know, made the generals very upset that they were talking to a major, but he was trying to convince them that the personal interests of the people involved in all of the conversations were in the way of the solutions, which is what I hear you saying Very true. In, in some sense, right? I mean, and, and we know in the disaster relief space that because that is such an industry and the way that those, those players in that space get paid, um, they're really protective of nobody invading their space. Very and, true. And, and this is, I think, a, a part, Richard, where you and I have always connected. If you, have, if you can identify the problem, the problem of the problem, and you fix that, you're okay if things go away. Right. I'm, that's a different kind of thinking. I mean, we certainly, I, I, every day I say in business education, we ought to teach you how to run a business until it no longer should be run. <laughs> that's, that's a great sign of success. Um, it, but, you know, I was just saying to my students in class this week, you know, let's talk a little bit about JCPenney, who is clawing and toothing to hang on to something. But it's just time. That's right. Yeah. Um, how, how do you develop that different of a perspective and philosophy around business? That's a, uh, it's a really good point. I mean, it's the blockbuster model, right? Um, at what point do you stop and change? Well, and, and I grew up, I am old enough to have gone to university when we learned just in time, right? Everything, we just want just enough supply to make just enough product to serve just what we have ordered. Now we realize that we actually need dynamic Mm-hmm. Uh, manufacturing, not just-in-time manufacturing. We need dynamics so that we have supplies when the, the value chains break or when the supply chains break. So if there's not a demand, what do we do with that excess? If there's not a supply, what, where do we source it from? Mm-hmm. The, uh, that same thing happens with uh, companies like GE 
and others that for years used to, you'd hear the CEOs of companies like IBM and GE and say, look, focus on what you do and do that really well. If you want to do something else, start a different division and they do what have you. And, and the other side of that, you have groups like Apple that say, be ready to pivot. So do you stay on just what you do well and stick with it or do you pivot? And, and in some ways it does take a little bit of both. You can yeah, certainly an get, and, and that's where kind of the art yeah. and the science comes up, mm-hmm. but having the, the uh, foresight to be able to think, to be able to say two steps in advance. And I think that's where one of the biggest challenges, uh, it's one of the greatest skill sets of an entrepreneur, but it's also one of the biggest challenges of people running businesses is they solve a problem, they get it to phase one and they prove it successful, but they're not always uh, captains of that industry and they're not always insightful enough or have enough, uh, uh, have enough input from other people to be able to see what's coming at them from somewhere else in time and, and have the strategy or the, or the experience to be able to pivot to something else. And that's where having, to me, one of the solutions is build a great board of directors and a great board of advisors. Um, and, and it does take a special kind of thinking. And that's why to me, it's not just about the singular, uh, focus of the business. It is about what part your, uh, what part of your business or your mm-hmm. facility participates in an ecosystem right. and to make sure those pieces, I'll, and I'll give you a, a side example. It, it, I won't say the name of the agency, uh, but we spend tens of billions of dollars of your tax dollars um, creating projects and programs to help solve problems with uh, in emerging markets. And many, many, many of those fail because we focus on solving a singular project. We grow, we, we have poor quality maize in Africa, so we're going to do a program to grow better seed, distribute that seed, and so we do that. And all of a sudden, the next season, farmers grow three times more maize than they've ever grown before. Then the markets crash because the markets weren't prepared to take yeah. on that much. They don't have enough storage to store it, and it gets aflatoxin and other diseases because they had to harvest it quickly and they didn't harvest it properly. Whereas if we had thought about the entirety of the ecosystem, it would have been a huge success. But that's the problem that confronts yeah. many, many. Well, when I was in the businesses. Dominican Republic in Haiti, you know, the part of the conversation, despite the racial tensions down there, is that when when we had that Haitian uh, earthquake and the disaster, that um, <laughs> without thinking about it, the Dominican Republic crashed the Haitian economy because they donated so much rice. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I mean, and so all out of this uh, generosity of spirit, generosity of soul, um, they they failed to forecast that they this was going to happen with that with that action. Edgar, as, as Richard, as you're sharing this, I have a question for you, Edgar, because it uh, it I, I know it, but it reoccurs to me that in the alignment framework, mm-hmm. some of the power is to think about somebody else's perspective in your system mm-hmm. first. Right. That's some of the power. You know, it's interesting because as we work with leaders, everybody thinks that it's you start with the leader and the power of the alignment framework is, you know, the leader is in the end of the framework, but we start from the customer. We start from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And so that perspective building is a lot of what I hear you what I hear you doing, right? IEEE has said this, you know, we have wonderful projects rusting around the world, <laughs> right. <laughs> right? I yeah, mean, to your true. point about the maze in Africa. And so, um, yeah, I think that being able to not only be that forecaster, uh, see the ecosystem and the connections, be a forecaster of the future, but also take the perspective of how other, other beings, other systems will behave. True. And, and, 
and by some measure, whoever is the best at assessing that ecosystem is going to win. It, it, you, you may or may not react, you may or may not change, but looking at the other components, everything that touches that ecosystem will open up new opportunities. It also opens up potential challenges. But at the end, if you're reflective and measurably, in some measurable form, responsive, you should win. Yeah. Whoever does that best. Richard, I, here's a question. Where are you uncomfortable in business? You can be comfortable in business. <laughs> well, that's a, that's, a, that's a great, that's a big part of this, really, when you think about whether people are thinking expansively or not, or you bring a product to market and you get success and you're not thinking beyond that because the, of the enjoyment of, of the sense of control and predictability that comes with it. And to be a systems thinker, one of the elements is to be able to put yourself out there and take the risk of discovering something that you don't know that you're not seeing and then being able to accept it as part of uh, whatever your endeavor is. And I think that's, a, that's to me, it becomes a key element of this. And, and I hear is something that I think is in you, Richard, and that has this idea that you're, you're great at inquiry curiosity, the contextual inquiry, to be able to go out and seek and seek out people to talk to and understand what impact or influence whatever your actions are going to take or to see how you connect those different, those different pieces that are out there, you're, different people that are out there. Oh, you're, you're exactly right. I think all the, the stoic minds would agree as well that, that you, you garner more knowledge from inquiry than you do from supposition. And mm -hmm. if you enter into spaces where you don't know exactly what you're doing, you know just enough to be dangerous, is a real opportunity to grow. And if you come, like me, from a faith-based perspective, it, it keeps you constantly dependent on listening to what you're supposed to be doing and paying attention rather than trying to lead on your own, uh, on your own cognizance. And to me, that makes a huge difference. And, and it, also, it also opens the door almost immediately to hearing what other people in the ecosystem think because they're going to give you the challenges that you didn't think mm -hmm. about. If you think that everyone responds in the same way in Africa as they do <laughs> in Denver, I think the term in Georgia we would say is you is wrong. <laughs> bless your heart. It's just you're going to get a lot of bless your hearts in there because you ain't going to be right any of the time. And that's a, that's a big, it's a really big issue, especially in developing markets. But um, we, you've got to spend the time to learn and understand what, what is different and also to understand that there's a, a bunch that you're not going to pick up initially and leave room to, to grow in that yeah. space. Yeah, which uh, then takes us to the part of, of just having and developing your own awareness of that. Um, you've, got to, you've really got to have a pretty open ego to play at that level. But this is, you know, we see this in the startup space all the time. And, and, and we watch this with, with um, effective and quote unquote successful businesses is startups almost never spend enough time talking to their potential customers. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I just took my class. We did a giant pause and we pivoted this week and I was like, okay, empathy interviews. That's all we're doing. Stop trying to sell your crap to people. Um, start asking <laughs> yeah. questions, right? I mean, because I, yeah, I, I'm chuckling in agreement with you, <laughs> uh -huh. uh, you, you know, because in, and, you know, philosophically we're, we're teaching people uh, two things. One is cut out the product pushing because the overconsumption is, is, is making the planet die. Uh, two, if you choose to do this this way, you are developing a sales business. 
Mm. Period. Mm. Right. You will constantly be trying to convince somebody why they need your product or service. That's right. And 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 that is hard work, right? That's people don't want to know what the what the PNL looks like for the cost of your sales team and marketing team if you develop a business like that. That's right. You, you know, Richard, one of the amazing things when when we first met was uh, it's really an easily misunderstood thing when you talk about being the chairman of the World Food Bank mm. that it's a nonprofit business but it's actually a for-profit business. Tell us a little bit about how that works. Oh, that's a great point. We, we realized at the beginning, if we're going to solve a problem, uh, especially on a global scale, it, it has to be a sustainable model, and it has to be a model that all parties are drawn into the ecosystem to want to participate. If you're constantly having to ask people to donate dollars, uh, it, there's going to be times where it's just not going to work as well or people are going to be left out and the system is going to fail or falter. So we built a model where we take a little piece by providing one or two of the functions inside of an ecosystem, depending on what that ecosystem needs in that geography. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, we're able to become part of the glue that keeps the system together. And as a whole, we're able to keep the, the yeah. operation running. And, and, you know, the, the repeatability of then it behooves you to keep the system running. Amen. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So how do you, so, so Richard, you know, I, I, I know you a little bit over the years and, and I think here's, you know, this is some of this philosophical question because, you know, our students wrestle with this and, and here in a Jesuit university with our kind of social justice mission, right? Capitalism can become a very dirty word here really quickly. You know, and I, I, I mm -hmm. think I've shared this, you know, I, I had a, a walk with, uh, with the former dean of our liberal arts college and I said, you know, I think uh, business ought to be a required course for everybody. And he said, well, that's never going to happen. Um, and I said, well, you know, here's, here's the important thing. For two years, faculty are telling our students that business is evil. And he says, no, no, we're not. We're telling them that capitalism is evil. And I said, well, who tells them the difference? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, this idea of listening and capitalism can go alongside. It's not, it, there's not an or there. That's right. It's a both. It's capitalism a both is lifted billions of people out of poverty, more than any other function or operation or system in the world. Um, but anything uncontrolled and without direction yeah. uh, and without rules and value sets uh, that mm -hmm. doesn't fall in alignment with long-term goals, it right. meets shorter and shorter and shorter-term goals, which are championed in some ways by other universities, uh, you lose some of the purpose of capitalism. And if the purpose of capitalism is more than the making money, but it's to use it as a lever to, uh, uh, to achieve great goals, it's an incredible, incredible tool that nothing really matches in the planet ever. There's a, there's a wonderful alignment in that. That just is simply that capitalism as a systemic form is there to, um, to, to really to benefit society Absolutely. in a very simple way of saying it. And there's the alignment factor. When that goes out of alignment yeah. and people aren't behaving that way and seeing what the bigger picture is, then, of course, like you said, Richard, it could, yeah, well, this, can go sideways. This, this um, you know, American recent version of moving from shareholder primacy to, to stakeholder concern, mm -hmm. um, ecosystem development in the way you think about it, Richard, is that. That's right. Right? It's not that mm -hmm. I stand on this part of the ecosystem to make this other part grow. It's that we, we work with the entirety of the ecosystem simultaneously. That's right. And the sign that you have that happening means the ecosystem is fracturing. Yeah. 
it's not a sign that the ecosystem is wrong. It's a sign that it's fracturing. It's because people are not in alignment. I'll give you a, a, an example if I can. In, in Africa, we've been working for 60 years now to lift 400 million smallhold farmers out of poverty. And we've thrown billions and billions and billions of dollars at it. We found that if we loan money to an individual farmer, there's a high likelihood they won't pay it back because they were willing to sacrifice their future for today. Their goal set is next week. They may not even be around next year. Mm -hmm. Their goal set is next week. So when you come in and talk about this long-term future plan, they don't see that. They discount it immediately. We found that they believe that they are a poor people living on a poor continent with little hope for a future because they've been told that by the West. They've been told that by people constantly That's sending them money. Keeping, life, yeah. they, are, they are much like what's happened in the U.S. in many instances. We're paying people to be impoverished. We're, we're paying, uh, we're, we're creating mm -hmm. systems within our government. We're creating systems within our aid models to keep certain classes of people poor. When we gather those people together and say, look, that two acres that you live on, we can show you how to take an eighth of that and make enough food to feed your family a six for the rest of the year. And the rest of it, whatever you grow on it is profit. And now you're going to go from subsistence farming to farming as a business. And you have a huge, huge success rate with that. And now almost 9 million people have been through a model created by a group in Zimbabwe across Africa that are moving them from under $400 a year income within a year to $8,400 a year in income. Their whole attitude changes. Now they know there are rich people living in rich soils on an incredible continent with incredible hope for a future. That's capitalism at work. But it also requires that those people come into alignment. What we found makes that happen at at mass and in and in real volumes of people is when you get 15 20 30 of them together and they're accountable to one another and they buy their seeds together they learn together they plant together they help one another they create pools of savings accounts they create pools to insure one another and then they're able to borrow together because it's a bunch of people signing to borrow for those inputs now it takes off like a rocket it when you're able to bring people as small a group as you can whatever that minimum viable group is into alignment, great things can happen. Mm -hmm. So, Richard, that's almost like a, a, a Mondragon society with with money. It is, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and I mean that in the most positive way. I, I mean, I, you know, that that kind of analogy. This also makes me wonder about our alignment framework. You know, we 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 do a couple things. I mean, one is when we force people to think about the emotional needs of their customers, um, it, 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 it opens the door for a conversation about what are we really about? Mm -hmm. Even if the mission, vision, and values are already done. And, and listen, there is, those are important things. You should do them. But they require constant work on them. They're not static. Um, so the conversation in the alignment framework from, from that customer is really important. That second conversation about the brand intention, mm -hmm. which is, um, you know, because they, many people we've worked with feel there's choice. So now I know that people want those emotional needs met. I choose this one. Mm. And then when you share the intentionality of the brand and how it delivers on that, mm -hmm. that one as the main thing, mm -hmm. we see some minds change. And then when you start to talk about the, the, what kind of culture you need to deliver on that brand intention, now we see the personal comes forward. 
And, and that every, every step along our alignment framework, we get a whole new set of conversations. Well, you can just, uh, yeah, and I can, uh, the, uh, there's so much power in this, in, in the example that you just shared, which is the, uh, that personal connection to it. Because at, at, at the first glimpse, it's a very individual endeavor. Then it becomes more of a community endeavor. So we move into the societal collective to make things happen and make things work. And at the same time, it always comes back to the, the human aspect, the personal aspect of it. So, yeah, when you start thinking about, you know, what does the experience look like for the individual, in, in the case of business customer, and in your case, uh, Richard, the, the customer, in a, in a sense, are the people that are doing the farming and doing the growing. That's right. And then you can see a collective, and then that collective of customers becomes a a group that, that they're, they're operating a like a business organization, right? They really are. And they and, operate that way. And what, the other thing that's kind of interesting is if you have a two or three small farmers get together and they start growing a huge amount of something, yeah. they, they'll sell a hundred percent of it and they'll, they'll eat white potatoes and, and bad meat and they'll sell a hundred percent of it. But when the group grows it together and everyone's growing spinach mm-hmm. and chickens and whatever, they will all absorb part of that. And their actual nutrition goes up because they did it as a group. They're proud of it. It's part of who they are. It becomes part of the culture. The nutrition increases. Yeah. The other thing that we noticed, and this is where you have to be very careful more so in developing markets, but um, we want to make sure that we don't share what we believe are the greatest goals and, and without testing everything. So we had, for example, a group of, of ladies that were highly successful at farming and they had gone from several hundred dollars to not between nine and $12,000 a year in income, which is puts them in the top one tenth of 1% in Uganda. And we went to them and said, you guys have done so well with 200 acres. We're going to, we have 5,000 acres. We'd like to parse out 2000 of it let you guys take it over. We'll help finance the equipment and you can do, you know, you'll do this and that and we'll help provide a market. You guys could make 25, 35,000 a year. And they kind of got together in a few minutes and they came back literally like in five minutes and said, why are you asking us to do this? We said, well, you could like triple your income. And they said, that's not the answer. Well, <laughs> we get to work together all day. We have a roof on our house. Now we have, concrete floors uh-huh. all of our kids are in school we're now able to save some money and pay for any health care and we get to spend time together if we did that uh-huh. we'd spend less time together and we it kind of hit us and we said you know that's a really really great point do what do it what you're doing right now yeah. we we actually come at it at the, <laughs> at the most personal level the uh, tension that uh, creates the greatest misalignments in our lives and that we need to learn to manage mm-hmm is the relationship between love and time. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, and so the third element there is alignment, which is how do I align in, in, my, in my own choices and the actions that I, that I take? And, and uh, in the end is how do I live love to the fullest in the time that I have? And uh, so that's the dynamic that you, just, that you just went to. It's kind of what is important. And the quip that I made about that's not the right answer is exactly that. We don't, we don't know the experience of someone until we begin to make the inquiries and ask the questions. We can, we're, we're wonderful, I, I think, overall as human beings. And I know in my own coaching work, it's the, the ongoing temptation is to always want to provide a solution and look at it this way. And, oh, no, that's... 
Yeah, uh, yeah that's, that's like weird. like my wife would say, just listen, <laughs> just listen. Right. Well, you know, I yeah. mine couple, says don't be weird. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. Yours, hold on, yours talks to you. Um, the <laughs> the I, so many things come to my mind, Richard. One is that um, sometimes innovation isn't necessarily in our future, but was in our past. Mm. Right, this this interconnectedness, this interdependence, interreliance mm. is is a concept from our past. Mm. Um, uh, you know, it was we have a joke on the podcast that I always come up with a movie reference while we're doing this, <laughs> and so it comes up in the weirdest places. I don't know what it's going to be on the way in the door, and my movie taste is not good. Um, <laughs> but the uh, you, you know, with with your background in history, and you know, I was thinking at the beginning, and then an easy one is is the Big Short, and you know, only for the reason that mm-hmm. he was seeing something in the system that other people were missing, right? Right, and so that one that one started to make sense. But you know, as you're sharing this latest story, um, you know, there's there's a there's a pureness in the in the conversation about what you're trying to do. Um, I I, I want to lay out a question. I'll come back to it. Is when do you know when to break a system? I, I want you to mm. answer that question for us. Um, but the the movie that comes to my mind as as you were having that conversation is the movie Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds. I don't know that I remember that. Do you know this one, um, Edgar? You, have you seen this can one? You frame it up. <laughs> yeah. So Free Guy is. Um, they're living in a little bit of an alternative world because um, they have uh, a video game. They have a video game world and they've programmed all the players and now all the players are in competition with each other and they have a person in the system who doesn't abide by the program anymore. And he starts asking a different set of questions. And so then they show the real world and they're like, what's going on and how do we control it? Mm. And, and the movie is he's free. He's, he's not programmable. Right. And he keeps upending what they're doing and then people start watching going, wait a minute, maybe we want that. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it's actually a really good study of, of human desire and human need. Um, but as you mentioned, those, those ladies and said, you know, we have food and we have a roof and we have a concrete mm-hmm. floor. Right. Um, you know, I think this is this, if we think the system should in perpetuity grow forever, mm. And we don't say that it's not always that way. Well, that's a, and that's an interesting aspect of how people, how we think in business. And it seems like, you know, unless the business is growing, you're not doing well. Right. And what does that mean? And that's the, the second part of that is where I think the real meat of it is, is what does that mean? What's the meaning right, of, of growth and, yeah. and, and well, some of that, your definition of success? Some of that comes from us to your point, Ken, that the system that's been built for us is a Babylonian system. We live in a Babylonian system, right? We live in a model that was designed to keep certain classes in certain classes. And I, and I'm not a classist, you know, I think everybody has incredible opportunity in the U S one reason they scurry across the border is because there's so much opportunity here. You, you can't shake a stick at it. Um, but, but the, the way that the world was originally designed, I believe was that, you have a uh, you have an an equity that builds up, mm-hmm. and it, we don't have to provide people. People are not equal; they'll never be equal. But there's an equal opportunity to achieve different things. But there is a certain uh, there's a certain recycling of of benefit in the Bible that talks about gleaning. Right when you have a big harvest, you leave the edges for other people to to take. It doesn't mean that everyone goes in and takes your 
your grains and they don't have to do anything because it's only a small portion, but there's enough there to help take care of the other folks. There's also the, the, uh, the ability that as you, as you turn, as you buy something and sell something, instead of saving everything and keeping it separate, you reinvest those dollars. So in a lot of the folks I deal with in the faith-based world, part of the goal has been we've been sticking money into the into the stock exchange we've been sticking it into a savings account or whatever those dollars if they were put into a system Mm -hmm. not given away i'm not a big donate everything but if they're put into a system that helps generate business and people can buy and build and grow and construct and what have you we can create we'll grow more crops we'll build stronger soils we'll grow more foods we'll feed more people we'll find new products build new technologies all that comes from thinking in a ecosystem that's circular right. rather than into something so, where we carve out what we we build what we can and we carve out our piece and and, it, and none of it's ours it's all I, part of I the think ecosystem. just and i think he just hit on something there because i think one of the key questions that we always need to ask then in any business is uh what is the purpose of growth or what mm. is the intention of growth uh, and have the conversation of what we intend to do with it, because I think very often it, the, the growth part of it is is the gain. And once I have the gain, I hold on to the gain mm-hmm. versus what I think is possible and what I can do with that, including uh, you know, the idea of you know what's what's on the fringes or what what is there as we harvest, what is there for others, and and what do we do with that? And that doesn't mean that you've got to be giving everything away. What it simply sure. says is you have a different and broader perspective and a much clearer alignment to what growth represents for your business and, and for and us. You, and you've brought it into the spoken well. realm, right? And bring, articulate it, bring it into, it needs to be, bring it into the spoken realm. It needs to be exactly. woven into the culture of the yes, organization. It does. It right. needs to be, it, really it needs to be spoken to. It needs to be talked about and uh, ultimately it needs to be understood. So everyone can align in their behaviors to it. When they have choice A, A B or ABC, huh. they know what the choice is. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I just had a flashback to yes. the organization we had had in here for a couple of days, and um, uh, Richard, we had we had a group in here in, in their executive leadership team, and their private equity group mm. came, and it was labeled as a um, what was the words they used strategy retreat or something like strategic that strategic planning retreat strategic planning retreat. So the the private equity group guys showed up with their suitcases, and they were going to leave by lunch the first day. And when we started the conversation, you're like, oh, we're not leaving now. We're staying for this. Wow. And it was fantastic. But this, Edgar, what you just said is the conversation in that room was a culture that was asking for this to be put back in. And the leadership of the organization was trying to figure out what to get out. Mm. And so they were just disconnected, you know, wildly out of alignment in that organization. Um, and I think that's what the private equity group stayed to watch. Mm. Yeah. And it gets interesting in the business context, just like in life, because we have our experiences, we learn, mm-hmm. and then we forget that the lessons learned aren't aren't intended to be repeated. <laughs> the lessons learned are that we have an awareness and what our choices are, and it's really interesting because very often what happens is like an example that you just shared with us. It's kind of like, okay, well, we're just going to keep repeating it. And everybody in the room saying, no, that's not really what we're seeking here. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, uh, there's a tendency for businesses as they grow, you know, there's the old mantra that if you, uh, if you have someone that inherits a lot of money, they don't really change. Just their personality is magnified. 
right? If they're a friendly person, they're going to be more friendly. If they're a giver, they're going to be a bigger giver. If they're selfish, they're going to be more selfish. Companies are kind of the same way. Whatever culture you've built in, if you haven't fixed those cracks, then mm-hmm. as they grow, those cracks become more and more evident. And that desire, that heavy focus on just this piece and not on that piece becomes more and more evident and becomes better defined. And it also becomes harder to escape. Mm-hmm. So when you try to take large companies and change things that if it was a smaller company would have been simple, but now that they're so big, it becomes really difficult and it is a challenge. Well, I, you know, I, there's so many movies I can point to that are movies about the, the company keeping the company going. Um, and the image I have in my mind, you know, as you're talking about uh, farming is, you know, one long plow line that just is unceasing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, but the, um, I, I want to bring that question back. When do you choose to break a system? Mm. And that's a, that's a great question that uh, you could probably have a dozen people with different systems and because there are so many that need to be broken. And uh, I think it's uh, probably what comes to somebody like me is you, different systems are called to mind that you'd want to break. Um, but I think there are, most systems have some fractures in them. It's just the question is which ones are the most broken. Um, I think when, there's a, when the system has what I would consider a terminal illness, it needs so, to be broken. Clarifying question. Do you have to wait till there's, when you say terminal illness, is this uh autopsy model, <laughs> right? I mean, we wait till they're dead and then we figure out That's what killed right. them. Because right. what got onto my head was I uh, ready where we went to, okay, where's the greatest dysfunctions in the organization or in the system, like in a family system, whatever it is. And, That's right. and unless you poke at that, you're never really going to solve any, you're not never going to make any progress in terms of getting out of that dysfunction. You know, so. And, and I, w- I won't get into too much of the detail, but, I, you know, when you, um, I had an incredibly uh, bright father, a genius by all measurements, um, and he was a fantastic father for 13 years, and then he wasn't. And I won't get into all the details, but the bottom line is that my goal when I got married and decided to have children was just to be better than that. I wanted to fix those things. I wanted to make sure I was around. I wanted to make sure that I responded, that I answered, that I directed, that I led, whatever. And the nice thing is the hurdle wasn't too high. So it was easier for me to be able to say I was successful. Companies, you can't really do that, right? A lot of organizations, you can't say, well, we're going to do it again and we're going to start new and we're going to do it over. It actually exists and you have to fix it. And you either have to duct tape it or you have to break it apart and kind of reconstruct it. And there are things like, just listening on the radio here, there are things like social security that the system is going to have to change. You can't just keep increasing the age at which you retire and keep spending all the money that you've borrowed. Ha- you're actually going to have to change the system. And uh, So, Richard, yeah. the irony of what you said is, you know, you just can't do it again. But mm. those are organizations that do the same thing over and over. I mean, their business is actually doing the same thing over That's and right. over and over again. That's right. <laughs> well, there's a lot of tra- there's a lot of entrapment in the idea of do-over. Yeah. Because, first of all, your past experience isn't going to go away. That's so right. you're going to carry that forward. It frames. It's yeah, a frame a, of reference exactly. for everything you do. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's a there's a quite a bit of fallacy in that in that idea. Yeah. And then the idea of also just, you know, busting it up gets really interesting real quick. It does. Because well, there's going to be so much protectionism going that's, yes. that's built into the system. Well, let's talk, can I ask a leadership question here? Because, you know, we're seeing, um, you know, Edgar with the, the great alignment and now the new alignment. Mm-hmm. We're seeing leaders... Might be able even the good leaders that can point to the fractures are asking for some superhumanness of their people to do it. Mm. How do we lead it? Mm. 
how do you, yeah, that's a good question. You know, I mean, these, the, yeah, and I, I think boy, there's some great, great ways to come at this. One is for the leader themselves to take the cape off. And, uh, you know, we, we, we have a lot of conversation now about vulnerability and accepting the truth about our human capability. Mm. And I think it starts with that. And the other one, the other one is to be able to, to be, um, to have a sense of graciousness and generosity towards the people that we're asking to help us create the change instead of, instead of making the demand and putting that on people, it's rather, and again, and then we're into how do you, how do you practice that? There's a lot of different ways to practice it. And really what you're doing is you're engaging and asking people to come into the conversation with you and to problem solve with you. Um, yeah, it's is it's is really is this remarkable. counterintuitive? You know, from yeah. from a systems perspective, if you put more things in the system, you have more ability to be interreliant and interdependent. Actually, mm -hmm. should be get better, but you also have more space for that's more a fractures. Great question. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I I fully agree with you. I mean, I think that's the action, um, but you can see how discomforting. I mean, especially in our U.S. society, the idea of the leader still is a cape wearer. Mm -hmm. I mean, we idolize uh, leaders in the entrepreneurship space. I call them the big five white guys. You know, we just, we call them out repeatedly over and over and over again for not doing things normally, um, right? right? We, we have framed leadership as superhuman, right? It's why you buy a book of on leadership by the SEALs. Um, right. I mean, that's <laughs> still one of, it's still a big publishing market for a reason. We want to, we want to push structure wherever we can get structure, anything that we can say, do ABC, take this medicine and that medicine and it cures it. And there's a, and again, to use kind of a medical analogy that many of these, whether it's organizations or governments, what have you, the, the challenge is the, the first division is, is, is this something I can cure with chemo or with radiation? And having worked in the surgical realm for a while, you know, we, we can fix everything with cold, hard steel, right? We'll just cut it out and get rid of it, which is, you'll notice there are a lot of CEOs in the world today, especially in tech areas that say, we'll just cut out this piece, we'll add in this piece, plug it in and it'll go. And in government, you can't always, you can't always do that. And if you, you know, chemotherapy is where you're, you're killing, you're hitting everything with something and everything's going to suffer kind of like COVID we're going to do, we're going to treat it this way. And everyone's going to sit under this, under this umbrella or under this blanket. And then we'll see what happens when it comes out and we're going to revive it. The, the, the other side though is being very specific, but if you have organizations that have several different cancers, several different challenges, which is typically the larger they grow, one fracture creates another, creates another, then how do you solve that? And it's not as easy as fixing one piece. It's a cultural change, but it, but it requires, it's the same reason that you have surgeons that that are experts in different areas. If it's your liver, it's one guy. If it's your heart, it's a completely different surgeon. And it's the same way in business. I think if mm -hmm. I come in and I have a problem, that problem typically isn't one, it's multiple. So and I I'm need still, experts. Yeah, and I'm still hoping that the liver and the heart guy are talking to each other. That's right. And they don't, still don't talk to one another. And we, we need to have a collaboration where we bring in experts from different areas and we sit and listen to them and fully vet all that and then find out what crosses over. So Richard, Edgar, how do you stay in it? You know, and so I, mm. I don't know that I've ever shared this part of my own background with you, but, you know, uh, once upon a time, I was an exercise physiologist. We had a medical fitness business. It was a wonderful model. And my, you know, my business partner and I, in his heart, he really wanted to do performance training. And, and you know, I'm just kind of bored with that. So, you know, I had these people and I was there for um, uh, orthopedic, cardiac, 
um, respiratory specialization. And so we had 95% physician referral. Um, my clients never left. Like we had no sales on my side because once they were my clients, they were always my clients. Mm. Um, and, you know, the argument was, well, we need new people. And I would say, well, why do we need new people? Right? We have paying customers. I, I don't understand at this point. We are serving the customers that we have. If we want to grow and scale, that's a different conversation. But we don't need different. Maybe more, right. but we don't need different. Mm-hmm. But um, so in that time that I was in that field, the conversation, and you're, you're, you're 30 years ago, the conversation about preventative medicine, which is a long-haul approach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's sure. not you come in. I mean, alignment is a long-haul approach. Hard to quantify. You have to come in and you have to see and you have to stick with it. I mean, and are we just globally oh, yeah. out of patience? It's just like your own life. Well, I mean, some of the best research that we have now, for example, in heart disease is the Framingham Heart Study. It's been running still, for decades and, and decades and decades, yeah. <laughs> and we're still finding out new stuff, um, you know, not the least of which is that we take lipid-lowering drugs and they don't have any impact on reducing heart disease or, or stroke. Um, or reduce the incidence of heart attack, but we still sell billions and billions of dollars of those products, even though we have tons and tons of studies. It's very hard to turn that boat once those billions of dollars are flowing into an, into an ecosystem. The, um, I, you know, as you're, you're talking about this, part of the benefit is when you get to that minimum or lowest level where the expertise is the best, you can't get, you can't get past that. Once you're at that level, the only, uh, that's where you can solve problems is if you can get to where the people are really the experts in that piece. And I, th- and I think one of the, I'm biased, but I think part of it is you don't want just the guy that's the heart specialist. You want the guy that's a heart specialist that used to be a, a, a GI surgeon or a pediatrician or whatever, but he has cross training. Then you can start seeing how people can work together. E- ecosystem it, thinker. That's part of, you have to have people that are an ecosystem thinker yeah. and preferably have some background in multiple areas of the ecosystem so you can start weaving things together, at yeah. least in leadership. And here we are in a, in a world of hyper-specialization. And right. to come back to that, to be able to say, yeah, but that doesn't preclude that somebody isn't aware of you know the system that they're operating in. That's right. That that's actually becomes a part of it. Because that's the tendency in today's world is to that to specialize to the degree where we isolate ourselves and are not open to seeing the you know quote unquote big picture right and, yeah. and there's a tendency to move to to see just what you need and I yeah. and I've been one of those guys just tell me what I need and I'll I'm gonna head out the door I'll that's, take care of it just tell me what it is and I'll take care of it and that's where our clients come to us yeah, yeah. and we spent uh, lots of money and several years focused on an area called aquaponics and hydroponics mm-hmm. and I can grow. Here in Colorado, we grew saltwater shrimp. We were going to call them mountain shrimp, but then we thought that wouldn't be. <laughs> anyway, that's a whole whole marketing challenge no, we have. But anyway, I kind of like um, that. Might be the title of the episode right there. If, shrimp. if we stuck it next to to Rocky Mountain, boy, anyway, jumbo shrimp, Rocky Mountain oysters and Rocky Mountain shrimp, it would be. Anyway, there wasn't really a big market for either of those, but um, we started. We found that we could grow tomatoes that were gorgeous, really beautiful looking tomatoes, eight times the the volume of tomatoes inside in a greenhouse in water filled with 25, 26 minerals and vitamins. And on outside of it, we could grow one eighth of that amount. The tomatoes that weren't quite, they were typically a little darker red, but they had bugs and insects and spots on them. They weren't as pretty. And we grew one eighth of the volume. So the tendency was like, let's build more greenhouses. It took us a few years because we were focused on how do we get more food cheaper into the marketplace? Well, then we find out a number of years later that 
what's in that tomato. The reason it tastes more like water and the other tomato tastes really good is there's 850 micronutrients in the soil. And God put them in the soil to make the perfect tomato. And we can replicate it, we can imitate it, but we're not going to truly replicate it, right? Yeah. And so we, we ended up thinking we had solved this problem, but when we started talking to people about nutrient density and nutrition values, and all of a sudden we opened up the spectrum to who we talked to, we mm -hmm. realized that what we thought was the perfect solution was a solution. It's great for inner city, it's great for some other things, but it's not the solution. Okay, so that comes back to what you were getting at, Ken, which is the idea of so what makes it, how, do, how does a leader make some choices, some decisions? And I'm going to come back to something that has great gravity and yet is right at the core, which is how do I use my time and how much time do I spend out in the world talking to people mm, mm. In, in inquiry mode, not going out in the selling mode or you know, promotional mode, rather the simple idea of going and engaging the world through inquiry, through curiosity, and then seeing it through the, and this is, I think, where the consciousness comes in to actually look for the opportunities to see it in, uh, through the systems or see it through the ecosystem that we're functioning and operating in. And that and question and challenge each of those yeah. things. So yep. it's you and two, then challenge our own yeah. thinking as you, we do. You it. two both need to go watch Free Guy. I think you'll see how, <laughs> how connected it is to this conversation. Don't you think so, Jim? Yeah. No, I'm on. I'm on board. <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. Well, uh, Richard, I'll bring the popcorn. Yeah. <laughs> It's a deal. It's a date. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming okay. and joining us today on the True Alignment Podcast. We so appreciate you uh, being with us and, and, and sharing, sharing the way you think. Oh, thank, thank you. you. I'm, and, and, I'm to and to also extend an invitation that you come back. Oh, I'd be delighted. Yeah. And, and thankfully, nowadays, because of the advances in medicine, there is therapy for people like me. So, <laughs> so when, you're, when you're 110, <laughs> we'll have you back. Right, right. Do that. <laughs> I, mean, tech, I wouldn't be sitting here if it weren't for the technology that I've got in my body. Trust <laughs> you. Believe me on that one there. Yeah. A quick shout out, Cleveland Clinic. How are you guys doing out there? Thank you. So uh, with that, um, we'd like to just remind you all out there to uh, visit the True Alignment website. And uh, all questions, thoughts, comments, anything at all, uh, please feel free to email us, info at truealignment.com. And, uh, again, we'll respond as quickly as we can. Richard, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Real thank pleasure. you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Honored. Great, great time. Thank you. I'm Ken Sagendorf. And I'm Edgar Papke. And uh, have yeah, a great we'll week. See, yeah, we'll see you next time around and live aligned. Thank you. <laughs>